Hi guys, welcome back. Before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to share some exciting news. I am launching a free podcast course. Yep, absolutely free. In it, you'll learn how to start a podcast, create a platform in four weeks, get access to resources, and more. Go to www.disruptingbalance.com slash podu, P-O-D-U, to sign up now. I was able to carve out a niche, like a successful niche for myself within that, like within that industry and within my company, it made mm-hmm. me realize like, oh, I'm not, I'm not some like flaky weirdo who's just like hopping from one thing to the next. Like I'm actually, the reason I'm succeeding in all of these things is because I'm doing a few things really well over and over again that can be applied to pretty much any business. And as I kept going through that, I was like, oh, actually, this is what what makes me different, makes me really good at what I do. Because I know what works broadly rather than just specifically. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Disrupting Balance, the podcast. Today's guest, you definitely want to hear what she has to say, Erica Tebbins. She's a business strategist and coach for ambitious women and gender expansive entrepreneurs who want to increase their impact and income without complex systems, sleazy sales tactics, or battling burnout. And Erica knows all about how to help people do just that. And you wouldn't believe 16 years ago, she was on food assistance and she didn't let that stop her. At the time, she was a military wife, a mother to a young child, college educated, and she had a strong desire to change her destiny and take bold action. So what did she do? She used everything she gleaned from her experiences. She was running successful businesses, managing and leading people, working for an organic farm, advocating before Congress for food justice, and running for office. All of this to help teach others how to take bold action. Erica is no stranger to pushing beyond her comfort zone to find the place and space that allows her to live authentically. And she guides her clients and others to do the same. To learn more about Erica, you can visit her website at www.ericatebbins.com. E-R-I-K-A-T-E-B-B-E-N-S.com or check the show notes. So hello and welcome to the Disrupting Balance guest chair, Erica. I am so glad you are here. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, I'm so glad. I can't wait to have this conversation. So we're going to jump right in with what is your story? So my story is long and winding, much like most people. It's not a straight path by any means. Professionally, I am a business strategist and coach for women and gender expansive entrepreneurs who are making money and are ready to scale their business with ease and without sleazy sales tactics or overly complicated marketing. That is my business. That is that is my work in the world. I'm also a wife and a mom. And my son has just started back to public school after being homeschooled for nine years by me while I've been running businesses. And we also are a veteran family. So my husband was in the Navy for eight and a half years. And that was a challenge unto itself. And interestingly enough, I went to school to be a high school English teacher And I've always loved teaching. And I realized that even though I teach outside of the classroom and I teach adults instead of kids, I still teach. And that is truly my greatest passion and what I love most. So it's a it's a real privilege to be able to do it and get to do it on my own terms. That is great. And I just say kudos to you for homeschooling your son for nine years. (laughs) I can only imagine with this whole online learning that I'm doing just over these past several months, I can only imagine how that must have been in the very beginning stages, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It was not what we ever anticipated. He went to school for kindergarten and first grade, and we realized that it just wasn't what we wanted. And so I started researching homeschooling and then ended up doing it And I'm so glad we did it. We planned to do it all the way through, but we got a really cool opportunity after we moved from New York to Michigan uh, about 10 months ago because Michigan has these different options for high schoolers. And so we jumped right back into the world of public school. And so far, it's been good. That's great. All right. So let's backtrack a little bit because when you and I talked, you had some very interesting or intricate details to your story leading to where you are today. And so you mentioned that you all are a veteran family. Mm -hmm. So let's take us back to those earlier days with your husband in the Navy and prior to you having your son and the shock around being educated, but yet needing government assistance. Talk about that experience. Yeah. So this is a really interesting chapter in my story. And I know I didn't mention it in my initial story because... I don't know. I, f- I feel like it's something that I am proud that I get to be what I kind of view as like an accidental activist for military food insecurity and food justice in that realm. But because I'm beyond that point in my struggle, I don't necessarily like identify with the person anymore who was in that position 16 years ago. So if we go back to when I was pregnant and my husband was in the Navy and we were living away from friends and family, we had moved to Washington state and I found out I was pregnant and our, I like I was working full time. My husband was working full time and things were really, really tight. And I was just confused because I never anticipated I would be in that situation, like I had gone to a great high school. My parents always really prioritized my education. I went to 
uh, four years of college. I had gone to graduate school. Like I was super well-educated and a very ambitious person. And I came from a family where we certainly weren't wealthy, but we never had to worry about food, right? We always had food in the house. And all of a sudden, I found myself in this position where I was complaining to a coworker that, oh my gosh, money is so tight. And I don't know what we're going to do when my son comes. And like, I was just really stressed out. And she was pregnant at the time as well. She was five months further along than I was. And she said, oh, well, you have you gone to the WIC office? You should look into that. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. I've never even heard of this before. So she explained it to me. And I was like, yeah, but we are a military family and I'm like working. Like, there's no way that we qualify for food assistance. And she was like, no, actually, a lot of military families under a certain rank in this area do. So I was like, all right, I'm skeptical, but I'm going to look into it. And when I did, I found out that she was 100% right. And I was really, really shocked by that because... I didn't think that that would actually be a thing that like if you were serving in the military that you would be paid so low that you would qualify for government assistance wow. it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. We started getting the WIC checks, we were using the WIC checks and it felt very like frustrating and shameful but I was also grateful that the program existed and then they said, you know, you should look into SNAP benefits. So what's, you know, commonly thought of as like food stamps. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll see. I really don't like want to have to go that route, but I guess I'll see. And I remember it was at a super, super low point where I just felt really desperate. And I went and I applied and we were denied. And I was very confused, but I, I really, at the time, like I was just so overwhelmed with life and everything that I kind of just accepted it. Like I was just like this is this is just how it is and hopefully we can get through this this rough phase and uh, and it won't last forever. So flash forward my son is about a year old and I go work for Calvin Klein. I become a store manager of the fifth largest store in the country and I'm making better money now and things are good and you know not amazing but a lot better and so i realized i'm going to go to the wick office at, at my next appointment and tell them i think i'm good i don't need the services anymore like i'd rather the money just go back into the program for somebody else so i i ended up being on it in total for about 2 years and then honestly i just kind of forgot about it like it was a really painful period of my life I just kind of let it go. I moved on with things. We moved again. I ended up starting a different business than the one I have now. And, and that was just sort of it. And then a few years ago, I had seen some article about Snap and I reshared it on Facebook. And with it, I, I kind of gave my own story, my own background so that people would understand that it's not just like lazy deadbeats which, you know, commonly like you hear people talk about like, oh, it's just like freeloaders and blah, 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 who want to be on government assistance. And so I was trying to paint the picture of like, it's not. And honestly, growing up that, you know, sometimes that's what I thought too. Like I was always very like liberal and, mm -hmm. and everything, but even still I was sort of like government assistance is like, it's good and it's necessary, but people take advantage of it and, and all of that stuff until it happened to me. 
And so I was trying to shift some people's thinking in the realm of that. And in that process, my friend Sarah reached out and said, I'm, I work, I'm currently working for this organization called Mazone that is a nonprofit and they are actually working on military food insecurity. And would you give them your story and like a photo of you and your son and everything to use in their material to get the laws changed? And I was like, absolutely. Like, it's the least I can do. So I did that. I gave them my my story and everything. And then time passed and I didn't really hear anything again about it. And then all of a sudden on Christmas Eve of, gosh, what year was that? 2015, I get a call. And even in 2015, like we're texting, we're not calling, like friends aren't mm-hmm. calling friends. So I mm-hmm. thought this is weird. Like, why is Sarah calling me on Christmas Eve? No less. So I pick up the phone and she says, in early January, their Congress is doing hearings on SNAP. And Mazone is sending their executive director, but they want to know if you will go and share your personal testimony because personal testimonies are way more powerful. Uh, And I was like, absolutely. Like, tell me when, where, whatever, I will make it happen. And so that really was the catalyst of me being a more vocal advocate for for all of that. And I so I flew down about three weeks later to DC and I testified. I had five minutes to testify before the House Subcommittee on Agriculture and Nutrition. And it actually what's really cool now is that every hearing gets live streamed to YouTube and also gets archived there forever. So you can look at any of them anytime. And so I I testified there and then we met with members of Congress after in some private meetings. And then I went home and periodically I will be asked again to kind of be a spokesperson for this issue because it still hasn't been solved. And so there was I got to speak at a hearing for the farm bill as well on it. I had two minutes to speak that time. And then later this month, we are actually getting together for kind of like a committee meeting to keep moving forward on this issue. And I've done different, been interviewed for different articles and things like that. And what is interesting is that I just feel, I feel like by me speaking out and sharing my story of a very painful time in my life that it enabled me to have this incredible opportunity to hopefully, even though change has been slow to come, hopefully we will eventually see uh, laws changed in this area and things changed for active duty military families. Yeah, I think that is powerful. And a note I just wrote to myself was something similar to the point of your most challenging and painful point in your life ended up serving a bigger purpose. In the moment, I'm sure you aren't thinking of any type of purpose out of this process. I'm curious, when you did begin to kind of, quote unquote, go public, did you feel nervous about it? Did you feel like maybe I shouldn't really say these things or am I the poster child? What were your feelings around that? Yeah, that's a great question. When I first just shared that Facebook article, it really was just a thing of like, hey, you know, this is something that I used to have my own biases about. And I feel like by giving people a real world example of somebody that they know who is no longer in that situation, but was once upon a time and came to find out it was it's pretty common 
if if people could see that you know not everyone is abusing the system and that these social systems are in place because people need them like it's really necessary and it can be a game changer for people who are going through a really difficult time like we're lucky we, we are absolutely lucky enough that we had family who would not have let us starve but not everyone has that. So f- especially for the people who don't have that, like we we need to look out for our citizens, right? For our other our other people that are in our country with us as part of our larger community. Like for me, in my mind, that is what we need to do. It should be part of our value system is that we don't let families and kids go hungry in America. And one of the things that I realized once I initially started to share my story and get involved with Mazone was I actually didn't realize how common it was. And what I found out through that whole process was actually that military hunger is way more broad than I ever knew that it was. So there's not a lot of great data because the uh, the flip side of it is that Part of why I'm not afraid to talk about it is because we are no longer active duty. And a lot of people who are currently experiencing hunger, they can't speak out because they or their spouse, whoever is the service member, could actually get in trouble with their command because it makes the command and the Navy or, you know, the military at large, not just the Navy, Uh look bad. So Uh they can actually be penalized for speaking out. And so a lot of times, a lot of people who are still active duty won't. But because there were really no repercussions for me or for my husband, it felt safe and I felt okay doing that. And once I realized what a larger problem it was, and actually like I've learned since then that, you know, once once I got involved with Mazone, one of the things that I had learned was that there are actually food banks at or near a lot of the major bases. And so like, I sort of didn't realize how like deep and pervasive it was. I also didn't realize that at a lot of the commands, like some commands will actually give you information to sign up for the WIC program when they find out that you're expecting. That wasn't the case for us, but I was sort of like, wow, this, this goes deep and broad. And I had no idea because at the time, again, I wasn't ever anticipating that I would be an activist for this. I was just trying to get through a difficult season. Um, right. And so so now th- I feel like through that process and knowing that I have a lot of safety and I have a lot of privilege around it, because th- like the other thing is, is that like when it comes to speaking out to Congress and stuff to get these, these laws changed, I... I am sort of a good poster child for this because I have background, like I'm I'm well-educated, right? Like I I didn't grow up poor. I was well-educated. I am, you know, I've pretty much always worked or been an entrepreneur. Like I'm also white, like I'm, you know, middle to upper middle class. Like there are a lot of things about me that make it so that when I tell my story to what is generally like old white men who are making laws, that they are more inclined to hopefully 
take it seriously because if it could happen to someone like me, it could essentially happen to anyone. And so it's one of those instances where I can very clearly like recognize my privilege in the situation. And I am, I feel a deep gratitude that I have the time and the space and like the emotional energy to give to this one issue because it's like a secret shame. Like people talk about it. Like every time I talk about it and I tell people in the civilian world, they're like, I don't understand how that's like a thing. I've literally never heard of this before. And I was like, I know we were in the military and I had never heard of it before. So yeah. So are you, or have you been able to talk to active military families, like, like from an advocate perspective, or do you think that would be shunned upon? So I have some friends who are still active, like they or their spouse are still active. And we have talked about it. It's more the, the places where I have spoken about it more broadly, where active duty people could access it have been in media publications. So mm-hmm. articles like for military.com and other other publications that are interviewing me and putting it out there and are also sharing just the larger story of what is going on with this. In those instances, they can hear my story, but I have never been asked to speak directly to active duty families. Well, that, I mean, that is good as well. At least the information, these active duty families can get access to the information. So that is helpful, I'm sure. Um, So let's take another step back. I know you mentioned at some point after having your son, you went back to school, right? So I'm curious to know about the thought process as to why you chose to go back to school And how you kind of adjusted your mind to get ready because, you know, I'm sure it was quite busy for you having a family and a job. Talk to me about that whole process. I was going to school while I was pregnant, not after I had Jack. Okay, while pregnant. Yeah. Okay, so you were working at the bank. Yes. So I was working at the bank and I was Mm -hmm. going to school and I was pregnant That's even more intense. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, why did you decide to go back to school? What was that whole process? Yeah. So essentially when I, so I was working for a large bank that everyone's heard of, but I won't say I was working for a large bank and I was a senior teller and I was working full time and it was still not much money. I couldn't teach in the area we work because I wasn't certified in Washington state, which is a whole other issue with military spouses and professional certification. But I just decided I was like, you know, I I was interviewing for jobs, different places, and they could tell that I was pregnant. And so the feedback I kept getting was either none, like I just wouldn't get called back or it was, you are overqualified for these roles. And I was kind of like, yeah, I I know I am. But like where we live, there weren't a lot of job, like really good job opportunities. And so I was just sort of like, I, we just need more money. And it just wasn't happening. I'm sure that in a lot of instances it was like, we're not going to hire a pregnant person. (laughs) Like, no. So I was like, I'm just going to go to school for 
medical billing and coding, which looking back on it, I'm like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever had because there's no way I would actually want to do that job. But it was one of those things where I was just so desperate and I kept, you know, seeing the commercials and I was like, oh, maybe that will work. Like I could, you know, work from home and do that and have my son. And oh my gosh, I think about it now with like the online business world. And I'm like, I could have been like something, I could have been a social media manager or something, but that just wasn't a thing back then. And I was super, super, super desperate. And so I actually went into debt trying to go to school for that and then realize like this just, this doesn't make any sense. Like I, it was really born out of like, I was in such a difficult situation. It seemed like a slightly better option. So I just, I went for it. And really it just meant that I was busier than ever. Cause I would go to work and go to school and we had one car And I mean, that's the other thing. Like sometimes people think like, well, why did you, you know, couldn't you just cut back in expenses? And I'm like, literally when I break it all down, like, no, like we had, we didn't have cable. We had one used car, like it, things were tight, Mm -hmm. but that seemed like maybe this will give me hope that things could be better when I graduate. And then I just realized like, I was getting to the end of my pregnancy and getting to the end of my program. And I was like, this is not the answer. And I have screwed up. And now I am even in a worse financial situation. But I know that like, I feel like that is also super common for so many people to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Now we're moving back kind of closer to where we were talking about previously. So you had this advocate platform or accidental advocate platform, activist platform, as you say, you've had the opportunity to speak to various publications to uh, testify before Congress. And then what ends up happening after that for you that I'm sure you didn't see years before when you were working at that bank? What ends up happening? Yeah. So we moved with the Navy from Washington State to upstate New York at the end of 2008. So at the end of 2008, we move. And I was like, I'm not going to keep working retail management. The money's great. I'm really good at it. The hours are terrible. My son was four years old. Again, we had no friends and family where we had moved to. And my husband was going to be working crazy hours. So I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. I ended up working for an organic vegetable farm at their farmer's market. And the owner, my friend Michael, um, well, now we're friends. I did not know him at the time. But I just started working at just at the market, just selling. And we were getting like CSA vegetables from them. And I kept telling him like, hey, you know, if we do this, that, and the other thing, like it would actually help your sales. And he was really receptive to that. And so what ended up happening was he promoted me to a position that essentially he'd never had, which was a market stand manager. So I ended up doing visual merchandising, sales strategy, hiring, training, staffing, all of it. Like basically if it happened with the markets, I was Mm -hmm. in charge of it. And we did farmer's markets, multiple farmer's markets a week, all year round. So it was a a pretty big job. And I was really good at it. And I really liked it. And I was utilizing all of my business and sales and marketing skills to really help him grow his business. And then through that, I ended up having a small farm for a few years myself. Again, something I just never thought I would do. 
And I still am very active in like local food and local agriculture communities. And I think it's it's really important. And it's also something I'm a I'm a huge, huge advocate for. But through that, I ended up randomly in the world of direct sales. Like one of our clients uh, for the farm who was a CSA member, she was with a direct sales company. And I never really anticipated that I would do that. I didn't really intend to do it with the goal of making it my business. I just was like, mm, this will be fun to do for six months or so, and then that'll be it. And lo and behold, when I started with that company, I realized, again, because I had all this business ex- like expertise, that mm-hmm. my business kind of blew up in a good way. And Mm. all of a sudden I was hiring my replacement at the farm. So that was really interesting. And I moved away from working for his farm. And then I was just fully in entrepreneur mode with that business. So I had my farm and I had my direct sales business. I I quickly became a leader, meaning that I was training other people how to have have and run successful businesses of their own within that company. I was doing monthly trainings. I was one of those people who gets like the free trips, which I was always like, that's not real. Like that's a total scam. (laughs) But I really like I did. And what I loved about that was the mentorship. I loved being a mentor for other people. And in 2015, a couple of my very best friends started businesses of their own. And we would just get together and I would help them and I would just give them ideas and give them strategy. And at the end of 2016, I was feeling very burnt out in my other business. And I started to get really curious, like, what do I want my life to look like? What could, you know, what could this be for me? And I was like, do people actually pay people to tell them what to do with their business? And the more curious mm-hmm. I got, I realized, oh, yeah, they they do. It's actually like not uncommon. And So mid 2017, actually, I'm just right about my third. Yeah, my third anniversary is coming up in a couple of weeks. I closed everything. I closed a super successful business and I took the leap into strategic consulting and coaching. Wow! And it was really scary. And I was like, am I making a huge mistake? But no. And also at the same time, that so 2017 was a really crazy year. So the beginning of 2016, that January was when... I had testified before Congress. The next January, I was in D.C. for the Women's March. And right at that same time, I was asked in my tiny village in upstate New York if I would run for office. So we had elections coming up that March. And I was like, I I don't think I'm qualified. And they're like, you totally are. It's fine. And so I was like, sure, I will run for I have no (laughs) idea what I'm doing. I'll run for office. And we have seven weeks to campaign. And I'm trying to figure this out as I go. I just kind of did it. And it was I didn't end up winning. I got really close. In hindsight, I'm actually really glad I didn't win. But our big thing was we really wanted to make change and we wanted to increase voter turnout in our small town and which that we did we accomplished in a huge huge way but in that process what ended up happening was other women i knew ended up some ran for office some went to trainings to learn how to run for office and others got super involved in supporting politics and candidates in other ways. So that was a really, really cool and unintended ripple effect. And I think sort of like the 
the like underlying current of my life is I'm, I'm sort of always like, I think this is the thing I want to do. I don't know how to do it. And I have no clue if it will succeed or what the outcome will be, but I'm Mm -hmm. just going to go for it because like, what's the worst that could happen. Um, and every time that I have done that, it has, I feel like really encouraged, like been an encouragement for other people to realize like, Oh, I actually don't have to have everything figured out before I go try to do this thing that I want to do. Like it is kind of okay to just wing it and, and see what happens. Yep. Fake it till you make Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. (laughs) I think we're kindred spirits in that regard because I share the same sentiment and have done some of the same things throughout the course of my life. So I am curious, though, in running for office, what were some of the challenges? Like, how did the your opponents try to play hardball? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So to put it into context, I we were in a very, very small town in upstate New York. It was actually technically a village. It was a really great place, a wonderful place to live. We were there for 11 years, but there were a lot of longtime residents who were very, you know, entrenched, like as you would be if you were like a fourth generation family in a village. But it was the kind of place that was starting to transform because of the local economy and other things. We were among some, you know, like newer families to the area and people who are moving in and who were trying to like revitalize the village and, and in the like business community and and all of this. So, uh, I like our family was very active in the local community and we cared a lot about it and local people. And we, we were friendly with a lot of people. My husband at, uh, for a few years had been in the volunteer. We had two volunteer fire departments in our village and he had served in one of them. And, and it was just a really great place. But there was one family and a lot of their like cronies who are were just not pleasant people. And they, for years and years and years, they had basically been in the ear of the mayor who had served as mayor for a long, long time. So Essentially, our government, our local like board of trustees was this mayor who wasn't doing a great job and was easily manipulated by this one family and four trustees who pretty much like would go along with whatever the mayor said. So our so our village was experiencing a lot of issues from bad government. So when me and the two other guys that I ran with, they were running for trustee and I was running for village justice. The whole time during our campaign, this family, this brother and sister were relentless, like running these smear campaigns against us. And what was kind of funny. So in the mix there in my like larger story um, in 2010, I had played roller derby for a few years. And then later I came back and I was a referee for roller derby. Mm -hmm. But I had these pictures from a past photo shoot that were on my. Facebook profile. And if you know anything about roller derby, it's very like people kind of have these personas, these alter egos, like the hits and everything. Like it's very real. It's not staged anymore or anything. But a lot of times people have these like alter egos, these very tough personas that they put out there for the world. So I needed headshots for our roller derby stuff. So for like our, our bout programs and and things like that. So my best friend, Anne had taken a bunch of photos of me 
And I'm like a very bubbly, lighthearted person in real life. But in the photos, I like look very tough and kind of mean. And in one, I'm giving the middle finger. Well, they took that picture and they were circulating it being like, is this who you want to represent us and blah, 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 blah. What's funny that they didn't realize is that more often than not, when people of all ages would find out that I did roller derby, they thought it was super cool. So I would get older people who were like, oh, I used to watch it in the 70s and like, it was so cool. And that's so awesome that you do that. And every time I'd bump into them in town, they would be like, oh, how's roller derby going? Like nobody thought it was inappropriate, but it was like all they had on me. And I had said like, when I, when I said that I would run for office, I told the democratic caucus, I was like, I will do this, but I am not going to scrub who I am just to win. Like if people are going to vote for me, they will vote for the real me or they won't vote. And that's, or they won't vote for me, they'll vote for my opponent and that's a-okay. But I want to be honest and upfront and authentic with like how I am and who I am. And so when they showed that, I was sort of like, well, this is, it's upsetting in the sense that people who didn't know me were talking crap on the like Facebook thread about me. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was sort of like, is this the worst you have? Like, this isn't even, this is like a campy fake representation of my derby like persona. This isn't like a real, even like a real part of, you know, who I am in my day-to-day life. And I have zero shame about the fact that I've done roller derby. And so that was kind of interesting because I guess I'm fortunate, but I've never really been like the victim of a lot of bullying my whole life. But all of a sudden, like people, people were bullying me. And I kind of was just like, I actually went onto my campaign Facebook page and I shared like a new updated image of me. And I was like, Hey, for anyone who doesn't know, like now I'm a referee and I actually, I love it and I'm proud of it. Um, and you know, if you feel like you can't vote for somebody who is affiliated with that, that's fine, but I'm not going to pretend that I don't do this. Um, and in the end I got like, I think I was 69 votes. There was like 69 votes difference between me and the guy who won, um, who was also the person who currently like held the office that I was running for. But I know it was enough that on the day of the election, I know that he was nervous. Like some, some friends of mine were with him that day and they said like he was actually nervous and we actually got like a lot of, we did heavy campaigning like door to door in the winter in upstate New York. And we got way, way, way more people out to vote than any of like the past uh, elections in like recent history in that village, which was ultimately what we want. And the two trustees won, but so that was all good. And I feel very proud of it, but I feel like the thing I'm, I'm most proud of, uh, is that I did it scared and that I stayed true to myself the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like even Mm -hmm. in the face of people trying to be really mean. Wow. So I'm curious then what would you say is the common thread between all of your dynamic experiences from the very beginning through Congress, through running for office, through your own organic farm? What's that common thread in those experiences and being an entrepreneur? How does all of that support 
your road to entrepreneurship? or roads, because you've had several businesses. Yeah. So for a while after I started coaching, I was sort of like, you know, because I was in the online space and I was sort of like, how do I measure up against these people who've been in the online space longer than I have? And when I kind of looked at the bigger picture, I was like, actually, you know, my my background is a is an asset, not a hindrance. So I was comparing myself to these other people who their only business experience was running an online business, which is fine and great. But I was like, oh, I actually have this real diverse background when it comes to business. Like running the Calvin Klein store, I was managing a really large team and we did over $6 million a year in sales. And I helped open a secondary location and like staff it. And I mean, we had legit sales goals that we had to hit. Like there was no exceptions. And it was, it was this huge trial by fire of what it means to run a successful, very busy, high stress business and do it well. Like I was really good at it. And I'm still, even though it's been so, so long, I'm still uh, in contact with a lot of the people who used to work for me. And I, like, I, I think back fondly on those days of, I I don't want to do it again, but like, dang, I was, I was pretty good at doing that. And there are a lot of people who aren't able to do that well. And then moving over to like small business. So the farm I worked for, they, by the time I left, they were at half a million dollars in, in annual sales. And I was like, wow, I utilized what I know about sales and marketing to help that business grow and to make it become stronger and Mm -hmm. to give people a better client experience and to spread the word about like local organic farming and, and all of these things that I was able to do. And then even in like the world of direct sales, like it's not a world like I don't coach people that are in that industry or anything, but just realizing that in an industry that is so hard because you're literally competing against people who sell the exact same thing as you at the exact same price point. And I was able to carve out a niche, like a successful niche for myself within that, like within that industry and within my company, it made Mm -hmm. me realize like, oh, I'm not, I'm not some like flaky weirdo who's just like hopping from one thing to the next. Like I'm actually the reason I'm succeeding in all of these things is because I'm doing a few things really well over and over again that can be applied to pretty much any business. And as I kept going through that, I was like, oh, actually, this is what what makes me different makes me really good at what I do because I know what works broadly rather than just specifically. That is crucial when it comes to sales and marketing. So yeah, so I feel like in that picture, in that bigger picture, I realized like, oh, actually, this is this is what I bring to the table. And it's what makes me valuable. And the other thread is that I am just very resilient and very stubborn. If I want something to happen or or go my way, I am pretty relentless. Like not in a way, not in like a bull in a china shop, like a mean, aggressive way, but in in a sense of like, I'm choosy about what I want, but when I decide that I want it, 
if obstacles get in my way, I'm like, okay, well, how are we going to get around this? Like, I refuse to just let an obstacle completely halt me in my tracks. It's more like, this is very frustrating, but it's just an obstacle. So let's see, how can I like brush myself off and keep moving forward around, around this thing? And that I don't ever really compromise who I am. If it takes me twice as long to hit some revenue goal in my business, as long as I'm running my business in integrity and in alignment with who I am at my core, then it doesn't really matter how long it takes me. Because if I can't do it my own, like my own way on my own terms, in the best way that feels good for me to do it, then I kind of don't, I kind of don't want the results if I have to go, if I have to get there in a way that doesn't feel great. So throughout the course of your life, you have made really brave and bold moves and pivots that have been instrumental to who you are today. But I'd like to know, what is the one thing that still scares you? Oh, that's a good question. The one thing that truly terrifies me is not if I were to not go all in on what I want. So not that I have to necessarily hit every goal perfectly or on a timeline that would be ideal. And not that I can't have a change of opinion about something. Like there have definitely been things that I thought I really wanted. And then as I'm working towards them, I'm like, oh, actually, I, I, think, I'm, I think I've changed my mind. And it's not because I've become disappointed or defeated. And so I'm just like, oh, well, like, let's scrap that. But because I genuinely am like, "Mm, no, this just doesn't feel like in alignment anymore. I don't want it. But I think that that I would get to like an end point of my life and be like, you know what? I there was that one thing I always said I wanted to do. And I just kept making excuses or I never figured it out. Like, I think it's like that. Like, I I am very big about making an impact on the world. And I would just hope that my own fear or mind trash or whatever excuses wouldn't get in the way of me having the biggest impact that I can. I am Erica Tebbins and I'm disrupting balance by living an authentic and resilient life. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.